Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by The Andersons. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank The Andersons for sponsoring today's episode. Take back your nutrients with BioReverse from The Andersons. Stock degradation is an essential part of no-till field management. BioReverse is a robust microbial package designed to significantly reduce residue stubble prior to the next cropping season. The application of BioReverse following harvest released 10 times more nutrients than fields left untreated. With a two-year shelf life and easy handling, BioReverse is ideal for every operation. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash BioReverse for more information. Soil testing has historically focused mainly on the chemical and physical properties of soil, but the recent attention being paid to the biological components of the soil has spurred new tests and measurements, as well as new areas of research and development on the biological systems involved in nutrient use and cycling. Lance Gunderson, president and co-owner of the recently launched Regen Ag Lab in Pleasanton, Nebraska, keys in on the biological components of the soil as he endeavors to help farmers build a better functioning ecological system. For this No-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Lance to talk about some of the new soil tests, how they differ from conventional tests, and why it matters. He talks about the Haney and PLFA tests and the differences between organic carbon and total carbon, and why bulk density plays a critical role in understanding the differences between them. He also talks about the carbon cycle and why he refers to carbon storage instead of carbon sequestration, how technology will help facilitate the necessary soil testing for the emerging carbon markets, and how synthetic inputs affect soil biology. So Lance, tell me how you got into soil and uh, what you're doing now. So I guess my journey started in the soil, I guess, when I was 19 years old, I started working at uh, Ward Laboratories in Kearney, Nebraska, doing mostly the kind of technician or or sample prep work, uh, mostly in the feed department and uh, a little bit with soils. And uh, over time there, I ended up becoming a soils technician, uh, running mostly kind of conventional type extracts, mainly three phosphorus and those things. And uh, in 2000, 12 or 2011, I decided I was going to go back to school for a graduate degree, and I focused mostly on microbiology. During that time, I decided to kind of start looking at soil, but from a biological perspective, a little more. And so we introduced phospholipid fatty acid testing at Ward, kind of created a new division there, and I was kind of a one-man show for oh, maybe three or four years, and then slowly kind of implemented in things like uh, the Haney test um, from Drs. Rick and Liz Haney. And we then added a few other things, and the division kind of grew. And I guess what really drew me into it was probably the community of people. I always kind of laughed because I wanted to be a uh, marine biologist. That's, yeah. I wanted to study sharks. And uh, here I am in the middle of Nebraska. Uh, born and raised. So somebody finally told me there's no sharks in the uh, Platte River. So I gave up on that. But really, it was the people that I got to meet through this process and work with hearing the farmer stories about what they really want to do and what they're trying to get to. And, and I thought, you know, this would be a good opportunity to maybe 
uh, be a part of something that was, I guess, a little bigger than myself and everything else. Where I'm at right now today was, I guess, in 2019, uh, towards the, uh, well, right about this time of year, actually. I uh, decided to kind of branch out and um, run my own lab. So uh, I, I parted ways with Ward Laboratories and started Region Ag Lab up here in Pleasanton, I guess the rest is history. Uh, we're just doing it like everybody else, trying to survive the last few years, right? So, yeah. uh, but we're here and, you know, we're offering a lot of the same things we did before, but we're also focused almost entirely on regenerative agriculture, which kind of sets us apart from a lot of laboratories. Um, I guess it makes us different. I'm not saying it makes us better, but makes us different. We're working on continuing to to develop and implement some of the newer technologies that are becoming available to try to help farmers again in this transition from more conventional, if you will, uh, farming practices down this other path. Talk a little bit more about how what you're doing is different than a more traditional lab. A lot of the the laboratories are focused on what I would call more conventional, you know, soil extraction approaches um, using using those extracts that were developed you know 50 60 70 years ago uh, to evaluate soil fertility and of course you know some of that's transitioned into you know more recently you know grid sampling and precision agriculture some of those things so there's a lot of focus on sample volume as cheap test pricing as possible and all those things, and they sound great, but it all kind of gets fed back into into fertilizer recommendations and helping manage the nutrients based on yield, you know, based on production. There's still a part of that in what we do, but we are not focused on necessarily, you know, grid sampling and precision ag, but we are transitioning more into management decisions and management recommendations uh, beyond fertilizer application. They're more large-scale, if you want to call them paradigm shifts or, or large management changes. You know, that may be working with a producer to figure out maybe how to reduce, you know, their tillage or cut back on certain fertilizer inputs or eliminate herbicides or even integrate other things into their system, whether that's adding in different crops in their rotation, implementing cover crops, you know, integrating livestock and, and any combination of those things. Mm-hmm. And so that's where most of our our focus is and our testing that we offer is is designed to try to help with those transition phases. And I guess the biggest difference there is number one, we're focusing on the biological aspect of soil. So far, I guess up until a few years ago, um, nearly every lab really focused on the chemistry side of things. They dabbled a little bit in the physical nature. uh, And about the only real biological measurement you could get would probably be soil organic matter. uh, But that was even discussed in the context of chemistry, usually surrounding, well, how much nitrogen credit do I get out of my organic matter? So we're just kind of taking a different different approach. We measure a lot of the same things, but we're doing it differently. Using extractions, uh, soil extracts that are designed to mimic natural soil solution. Again, not saying that those are necessarily better or more useful than 
the more traditional things, but it's just a different way of thinking about it. It does not rain Malik 3 solution. We do not irrigate with Malik 3 solution, you know, those types of things. And so, and I'm picking on Malik, but it's, so it's just a difference in philosophy, I guess. You've got the name regenerative ag in, in the name of your lab. So what would you say is sort of your definition of that? Oh, the old question of what is regenerative <laughs> ag? I generally tell people that the definition of soil health and regenerative ag is is what it's an individual definition. Okay. And there's but I think there's some underlying principles that kind of always find themselves as a foundation. But the motivations to do quote unquote regenerative agriculture are different based on the individual. In regenerative agriculture, we have the foundational principles of, you know, trying to rebuild a system that is more self-reliant, resilient, providing ecosystem services, and those can be related to the water cycle, carbon, nutrient cycling, nutrient density in plants, those things. It's creating a system that is more highly functioning, uh, not necessarily higher yielding, but higher functioning uh, and kind of stepping away. Now, the motivations that we have for that as individuals might be, for example, animal welfare. So some people might look at regenerative agriculture and define it as, you know, integrating livestock where livestock can do what they do best, which is be out on the land and, and graze and, you know, be happy, right? Um, some people might find it more under the definition or context of climate. Soil, the water quality people will look at it more from that perspective. So it's hard to put a full-blown definition on it. But the one thing that I've seen is that through the principles of regenerative agriculture and through those practices, we can kind of address all of those perspectives or all of those, those motivations at one time because it is a systems approach. So you're not just trying to fix the carbon cycle because in doing so you're also going to be doing this 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 and this i would say that any system is addressing all of those things whether directly or indirectly by definition is a regenerative system well and since you brought it up why don't you talk a little bit about the carbon cycle and just sort of give us an overview of how the carbon cycle works and how is it sequestering carbon and how is that nutrient cycling happening the key word whenever we talk about carbon is the word cycle. It, it is cyclical in nature. And for a long time in agriculture, we have really lopsided that cycle. Uh, we have a lot of carbon leaving the soil system with very little coming back into the system. What I'm afraid of now is that there's a lot of discussion around the term sequestration, right? And everybody wants to really focus on tying this carbon up and sequestering it and holding on to it. Well, that's not really any better of a solution when it comes to the carbon cycle. All we're doing is lopsiding it from one side to the other. So now it's, well, we got to capture all of it. We got to put it in the soil. In reality, what we really are hoping for is that we capture CO2 through the plants with photosynthesis. When that carbon enters the system into the soil, we need the microbes and the macroinvertebrates and all the other animals to decompose that carbon. 
as consumers. And in doing so, they're going to release a lot of it, a, a vast majority of it, back into the atmosphere, which then will be taken up for photosynthesis. There's one of two ways you can shut down that process. Limit photosynthesis or limit decomposition. I would argue that what we have done by and large is really limit photosynthesis. We've taken perennial systems, native systems, and turned them into agricultural fields where we grow annual crops, by mostly, we have a long fallow period in between. No living root in the ground, no photosynthesis taking place. Uh, you can see this on, on CO2 atmosphere measurements, right? Uh, oh, you can tell, here's summer, here's winter, here's summer, here's winter uh, in the northern hemisphere. So we, we see this and we know we're doing it. That limits the carbon input into the system. When that happens, your microorganisms, they eat 365 days a year. That doesn't mean they eat at the same rate every day when it's hot or frozen or dry or too wet. I mean, it changes, but they still eat. And so they're relying on carbon that was captured through photosynthesis decades ago or hundreds of years ago. And Jay Fuhrer, I'll mention him, he, he set a term that's always stuck with me, and he calls that old sunshine carbon. We call it collectively its soil as soil organic matter, which is 60, about 60% carbon. The microbes are consuming that, and we've seen soil organic matter numbers drop across the entire country uh, where we have agriculture happening. Uh, and I, I say everywhere, meaning 98% of the time. To fix the cycle, we need more photosynthesis. We need more income, carbon income coming into the soil than what we're spending it. But we cannot shut down microbes spending it. They have to do the decomposition because the decomposition is what helps build soil structure. It cycles nutrients. It's what helps the water cycle, all of the above. So the idea of sequestering carbon simply to lock it up is not really a, well, it's not a great way of looking at it because we don't want that to happen. We don't want to shut down the biological part. I relate this to a little bit to, to money and to economics, and, I, and I'm not going to take credit for all of that. Uh, Keith Burns with uh, Green Cover Seed in Bladen, Nebraska, gives a fantastic talk on carbonomics. Mm -hmm. uh, but relating it to that is that the photosynthesis is, of course, is your income, the microbes spending it out, uh, through decomposition and the evolution of CO2 back to the atmosphere is your spending rate. If you've got a really large income, you can have a really large spending rate, but you can save little fractions of that. The more income you have, if I say, well, I'm going to save 2% of my income every year. Well, if I was rich and famous, 2% is a lot of money. That's relative to income, correct? So it's okay for the microbes to be very active. And that is a healthy carbon cycle. CO2 leaving the soil tells us that system is operating very well. And most native systems have a very high respiration relative to agricultural lands in the same area, simply because that, that biological system is revving and, and it's going. Again, you don't want to shut it down on either side. We need to increase the income uh, on the photosynthesis side, and it's okay if your respiration goes up because hopefully we're saving a little more 
every time. And that's how we build soil organic matter. What about like the fungal to bacterial ratio? Does that come into play here? It, yeah, it, it does. Um, so a lot of our agricultural systems are very dominated by bacteria, mostly because bacteria are just less sensitive to disturbance than fungi are. Right. So things like, you know, high, high inputs of, of fertilizer, high synthetic inputs, you know, tillage, you know, fallow, the bacteria are just better adapted to handle those types of things, uh, the stressors, and fungi just aren't. And so most of our agricultural systems are dominated by bacteria. The issue is, is that bacteria, by and large, most of them are in this very short term as any, any individual. And so when conditions are right, they consume, consume, consume. So we do a tillage event. We get, we get a little bit of moisture. The bacteria just kind of go nuts. They use the nitrogen that we put on. They use whatever else is out there, and they turn around and consume huge amounts of carbon that were stored in the soil that maybe weren't as weren't accessible or readily accessible until we stirred the soil up, added a bunch of oxygen, added a bunch of nitrogen, and now all of a sudden they got all the right pieces to kind of go nuts. And they use a lot of carbon in a very short amount of time. The soil system basically collapses on itself because the carbon is what holds the soil together. And we basically create bricks. The fungi, on the other hand, uh, fungi have a tendency to quote unquote store. I'm not going to use the word sequester. They store carbon for a longer period of time. Number one, because they are building large networks. They make more complex structures uh, out of that carbon. And they do not turn things over quite like bacteria will. And you couple that with increasing the amount of fungal presence, you have to do a couple of things. Number one, you, you really have to stop disturbing the soil with mechanical tillage. Uh, fungi just don't do well with that. Mycorrhizal fungi do not survive fallow. So if you start to eliminate fallow and that increases your mycorrhizal fungi, well, then you're also probably capturing more photosynthate because you've got living roots in the ground. So it's not just the fact that fungi don't decompose carbon as quickly as bacteria. It's that if you're increasing the fungal numbers, you're probably doing so because you're doing all those other things that also slow down the decomposition or loss of carbon and increase the income of carbon. So it's a kind of a coupling effect, which comes first, but all of those things in place together is why that fungal to bacteria ratio, and we talk about that, about the fungi being in the system is an indicator of a higher functioning system, most likely due to all of those other things that surround it. Why are the fungi there? Okay. So are there certain tests that farmers should be looking for? I mean, if they send some samples to your lab and they're curious about their fungi to bacteria ratio and, you know, sort of getting on that regenerative pathway, what are the tests that you're going to be suggesting, I guess? Uh, yeah, so the, the first test that I generally suggest, regardless of, of situation, unless it's a very, very specific, I recommend the Haney test. The, the Haney test, by and large, is going to look at 
not only soil chemistry and, and soil fertility, it's also going to couple more traditional measurements uh, using soil pH, soil organic matter. There's nothing different about the way we measure that on a Haney test versus a conventional test. But then we also couple in the, the biological parts of the soil, some of them, water extractable organic carbon. So a subset of your soil organic matter, the organic nitrogen, uh, a pool of nitrogen that, that we don't give credit for on conventional tests as being available to your crop. But the, the healthier your system becomes, the more organic nitrogen you have in the system. It becomes very economical and important uh, to know what that is. Soil respiration, of course, is as a measure of potential microbial activity, and it relates to microbial biomass. That test is a good summary and a good place to start to get an idea of where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. If we want to get into the fungi and bacteria ratio directly, then the test that we offer is called phospholipid fatty acids or PLFA. That is the current test that we have available to measure that. Uh, there are other tests out there. One of them that we are working with and that we really really think, I think, is probably going to serve to be a replacement for phospholipid fatty acid testing, not immediately, but maybe in a few years, is going to be the genomics, metagenomics testing. And we work with biomakers uh, on that, and uh, they have integrated a fungal to bacterial ratio component into their test. And um, that that's a whole different topic, but if those things are of concern, the fungi to bacteria ratio, then those are some of the testing options that we have out there and that are available. The Haney test, I generally recommend, you know, running once per year, especially early on in the transition. It helps you measure things. For things like PLFA, I would be looking at maybe get a baseline if you can, but then we don't need to really test that again for, I would say, two years at minimum, probably three or four years down the road. Uh, because we're using that test more as a report card. Uh, we want to see how your soil ecosystem is going to change in response to management. But we're not necessarily going to be giving you really hard recommendations based on those numbers. We can kind of guide you one way or the other or give you feedback on how well what you're doing is working or not working. But we don't look at the number and just say, oh, okay, well, based on this number, you need to go buy this product and put it on because mm -hmm. that's kind of how conventional ag has worked with, with testing. And I gather there's a new Haney test. Is that something that you've started working with or is that not released yet? There are some additions or some changes that are coming about on the Haney test. So Re Region Ag Lab recently uh, was fortunate enough to hire Dr. Rick Haney and he, he is going to be working with us on uh, not only interpretation and, and better understanding, there's going to be some, some work done to correlate some of the, uh, or look at correlations, I guess, uh, between some of the, the numbers on his test relative to some of the other things we offer um, to see if we can build some, some better interpretations tied back to what we're seeing in the field and beyond just the, the nutrient side of things. But with that being said, Rick is also working on some revisions to the test. Now, the foundational pieces of it aren't really going to change. We're still going to measure the things we're measuring, but he's been working on developing some new, I guess, indices or, or calculations based on those data 
that we're collecting off of the test. And uh, he's been he's been working on that for a little while. And so, yeah, we hope to uh, kind of roll out those options probably uh, early in 2022. But as far as how you would sample or what the numbers would look like coming back, we're not really changing a lot of that. It would be more bridging the gap between the data and what you're going to do with it. So more on the actionable side or the interpretation side. We'll get back to Lance Gunderson in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's episode. Take back your nutrients with BioReverse from the Andersons. Stock degradation is an essential part of no-till field management. BioReverse is a robust microbial package designed to significantly reduce residue stubble prior to the next cropping season. The application of BioReverse following harvest released 10 times more nutrients than fields left untreated. With a two-year shelf life and easy handling, BioReverse is ideal for every operation. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash BioReverse for more information. Now, let's get back to Lance Gunderson as he explains the primary challenge of measuring soil carbon and how synthetic inputs affect biology. I'd like to also just get your thoughts on measuring carbon. I know that there are various different tests or different ways of looking at carbon. There's soil organic carbon and there's water extractable organic carbon and there's total carbon. Can you just talk about those different ways of measuring it and what is your best recommendation for how to measure carbon? The difficult part does not come from the the measurement in the laboratory itself. All of those tests are relatively simple that you just mentioned, total carbon, organic carbon, you know, soil organic matter, water soluble. Those are all fairly simple. The biggest problem is trying to pin down what is it that somebody's really trying to quantify and measure versus what should we be quantifying and measuring. What I mean by that is that oftentimes the terms total carbon and, and organic carbon are interchanged. Sometimes... We get in the eastern part of the country or the southeast especially, total carbon is equal to organic carbon because we don't have excess lime or inorganic carbonates and things like that in the soil because the pH of that soil is low. So that's why sometimes the terms are used interchangeably because essentially you're measuring the same thing, whether it's total or organic, it's all the same. The biggest problem surrounding the measurements is not not the laboratory technique, it's the sampling and relating it back to a quantifiable number in the field. So the lab can give you a number and say your soil is 2% organic carbon, but then we have to use bulk density as a measurement to understand, well, what does that 2% equal? Is it your soil's 2% soil organic carbon based on 2 million pounds of soil, which is kind of the old um, rule of thumb? A soil to a depth of six and two-thirds inches in one acre weighs two million pounds. Well, that's using a standard bulk density. If you really want to quantify it correctly, you've got to do a good bulk density measurement. Since carbon markets and discussion on carbon measurement and sequestration, the bulk density has really been the hard part that people have been trying to figure out. They're difficult to sample. Again, easy to run in the laboratory, difficult to sample, and by and large, Carbon using the current methodology, dry combustion carbon, whether that's total or organic, 
uh, uses the same instrument platform, essentially. It's very difficult to scale. The instrumentation is limited to maybe a couple hundred samples a day. The instruments are very expensive. If you want to have 30 of those in a laboratory, you're looking at $3 million and a few people. You're going to need at least five to eight people to run them. And for some of these for some of these very large large laboratories that are running 5,000 to 10,000 samples a day, it's not really scalable, very difficult. So that's the real hard part with the whole carbon measuring part of this carbon market process. Then the other difficult part is uh, depending on which market you're working with or which regulatory body you're hoping to, to market this carbon through, they have different sampling guidelines. So maybe a sample zero to six inches deep uh, every 10 acres, or some of them are saying, no, it's zero to 12, and we're going to do every five acres or 20 acres. And so there's all those, all those little things. But the lab part of it is, is fairly simple. It's just a question of scalability. In my opinion, I think that the water-soluble organic carbon from the Haney test is a better metric than just understanding the, the total carbon or the total organic carbon, uh, mostly because the carbon cycle is not static. So it's not linear. The water-soluble fraction is an indicator of both your carbon income, how much photosynthate you're getting in the new, or as Jay Pierre would say, the new sunshine carbon versus the old, right? So now this is an indicator of a lot of new sunshine carbon or a lot of carbon capture, when you couple that water-soluble organic carbon with your respiration, it tells you what your spending potential is based on, on your income and also what your spending potential is based on your microbial biomass. Higher income coupled with higher biomass means a lot more CO2 going back. However, that may not be a bad thing because you're bringing in a lot and you can save some. Now, microbes naturally do that. They're going to save some until you starve them. And then they have to start dipping into the savings account. And the savings account is your total organic carbon from the soil organic matter. We don't want them spending all of that. And so I like the water-soluble number. I still think that we can use loss on ignition, a soil organic matter measured by loss on ignition for, for more of a scalable option, and then maybe use dry combustion or something else to kind of ground truth that, if you will, or double check that every three years. But I think the loss on ignition allows it to be scalable. I think it'll, it's a number that most farmers are used to looking at, and it's something that by and large laboratories are set up to run several hundreds of thousands of those a year. As a collect, when you when you start looking at the soil testing labs that are out there, we can collect a huge amount of data on on carbon on a lot of acres relatively cheaply, and we're already doing it year in and year out. So I think that that would work well. Ultimately, however, I believe that there's going to be technology that comes about that is going to probably eliminate the need for really large scale soil testing for carbon in a laboratory. Okay, what sort of technology do you need? There's already some things out there with uh, satellite uh, imagery. There are sensors on um, planters, you know, drills and that kind of thing. So uh, there's also some sled technology using like, uh, using scanning. They've done that before with, with like electrical conductivity measurements. And I've seen some of that with carbon. There's also some infrared like drone technology out there. There's in-field scanning or sensing um, using like near infrared 
technology. I, I don't think it'll be too long before if, if this is going to be scaled to to the size that we hear about from a few companies. You know, we're talking about tens of millions of acres and very soon hundreds of millions of acres. I think it's going to have to rely on those types of technologies. There will always be a place for the lab to do some ground truthing just to help build these models and build these algorithms. It'll be very difficult to for a laboratory to cover 10, I mean, 10 million acres worth of soil. And if they're going to sample every 10 acres, that's a million carbon samples. And that, and at 200 a day per instrument, I mean, do the math. It's, it's very difficult to have anything in real time. And, and of course, one thing we all know in this industry is that uh, we, we've got to have decent turnaround time on top of being, you know, of course, precise and accurate, but it needs to be quick. If it can't be quick, cost and turnaround time go, they're kind of ebb and flow back and forth, kind of a yin and yang. It takes a lot of money to, to be really fast and accurate, but then that makes it not scalable either because it, it becomes not economically feasible to run a million carbon samples. I want to shift just a little bit. I want to ask you Something sort of specific. I saw some research done out of Victoria, Australia, and it was showing the effects on the biological community of synthetic herbicides and fungicides. Basically showed during the first application, there was a decline in the, the microbial activity. Mm -hmm. And then six weeks later or something, there was another one. And, you know, the, it had come back some, but then after the second application, it was depressed further. And then it came back a little, but then there was a third application and it was it almost bottomed out. So I was just wondering if you had seen that research or if you've done those kind of tests and what your thoughts are on that. I have not seen that research directly. I, I've seen similar. Well, I, I can't say that. I don't I didn't look at their study, but based on what you told me, I've seen similar uh, research done. You know, I, I get asked that question a lot about if I, if I use a herbicide or if I use a fungicide or even just synthetic nitrogen, uh, you know, what does that do to the microbial community and how, how effective is that? Generally, there's, you know, there's one of two sides. Everybody, you, you'll have people that'll say, well, you know, this shows that they recover in six weeks. I've heard that a lot. And I, and I also have others that say, you know, one application of this is just wipes. I mean, it just wipes everything out. And, and I'll say that neither one of those is necessarily 100% correct and 100% wrong. What typically happens is that when you apply anything into a system, there's either a positive effect or, or a negative effect. And that positive or negative depends on the organism being affected. So what I mean by that is that some microorganisms negatively affected by things like glyphosate. Glyphosate was developed as an antimicrobial. You know, it upsets the shikimate pathway. That's what it was used for. Um, however, it doesn't sterilize the soil. Some organisms use that as a food source. And Rick Haney's done that work uh, to show how respiration increases when you add in glyphosate because they use it as a food source. Mm -hmm. Now, when I say that though, remember a community is made up of lots of different organisms and in this case, lots of different species. Mm -hmm. So when you use any of these types of products, what you start to do is you start to transition the community in favor of organisms that can tolerate and use that as an advantage. The ones that are harmed by it start to go away. What happens when you say, well, we put this on and the activity, however they're measuring the activity, the activity dropped severely. Six weeks later, the activity recovered to normal. But what 
you maybe don't measure, and maybe they did, I haven't seen this research, but what we don't really always take into account is that, well, yes, but let's say that we, we started off with 100 species at just say 1,000 individuals of each these species. You add in what you're going to add in, and you just kill 50% of the species, which means your activity, if the other ones just sat there, that means your activity goes down by 50%. Over the next six weeks, the, one that, the ones that survived, they double in number. So now you've got the same number of organisms, but you got half the number of species represented. And mm -hmm. over time, you're just selecting for a very narrow, very narrow community structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that in itself is probably more detrimental than the actual activity level or the number. The more often you do this, whatever that application may be, the more often you do this, the more you keep pushing that community that direction. You can say the exact same thing about your crop rotation. Corn on corn on corn on corn perpetuates a microbial community that loves corn. And so it's no different with any of these other applications, uh, whether that's a herbicide or pesticide or even fertilizer. So by and large, I tell everybody this, is everything is toxic. I don't care what it is, water, oxygen, everything is toxic. What determines its toxicity is how much and how often. And certain things that we identify as toxic are things that are very harmful to you in a single dose and in a very small amount. So we, we think of things like botulism as being toxic because it, it's scary how toxic it is. We don't mm -hmm. normally, or cyanide, but we don't normally think of water being toxic or oxygen being toxic, but they are. Mm -hmm. Too much of anything at one time. It's just And so same thing, the microbial community responds to those things very similarly to us eating a very, you know, rigid or narrow diet, right? Your, your sure. microbial composition will change. Um, and that's what we're doing is we're feeding the soil different things, whether that's growing crops or cover crops or livestock residues or herbicides or synthetic fertilizers or organic fertilizers or, you know, mm -hmm. any much of any one thing at any time will select for that community. Well, that was probably the best explanation I've had so far. I guess I've seen different kinds of research on, on this whole issue with especially glyphosate and its effects on the microbial community and some some research says, well, you know, the two community profiles are not very different if you apply it or you don't apply it, but that is a single instance of measuring it. And so if you were to then go on and measure it over and over and over, I, I think it makes a lot of sense that you would see it change over time. Lance, I really appreciate this. Yeah, you bet. Just wondering if there's anything else you would like to add. Actually, I guess I, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned getting started in 2019 and then COVID hit. And um, I, you know, I think you said that uh, it's been a challenge. So just wanted to sort of um, hear how has that impacted your getting this lab up and running and how are you moving forward through it? Kind of the timing surrounding the startup of the lab and uh, with COVID is that it would have been early fall of 2019 uh, when when we kind of launched the lab here, and we were supposed to have a brand new building starting construction in October. Mm -hmm. The building was supposed to be completed in early January of 2020. They did not actually get the building delivered until the first week of January in 2020. So basically the week it was supposed to be finished was the week they started. And once the, the building was 
finished in March of 2020. We had nine employees on staff starting in April of 2019. Uh, we had lots. We had a lot to do, but not necessarily analytical work. And now we had all of the equipment that got delivered in March. Come April, when we got the electrical and everything finalized, nobody could come out and do any install. Oh, no. Uh, because that's when the world shut down, right? So uh, the instrument companies couldn't come do any installations on any of the equipment. Uh, so we had all this money spent, no way to get it installed, no way to generate revenue. So yeah, so we we kind of hung on. We had a lot of we had a lot of really good help from from our lenders uh, at the bank. They understood. They worked with us. Our clientele have just been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we started receiving samples, you know, back in February of 2020 and the building wasn't even done. Uh, and, you know, and, and I had to explain to everybody that, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't know what we can do and, and I don't know how we're going to get going because, you know, just of the world circumstances. We, we didn't actually open the doors and really start running the way we hope to on a kind of day in and day out routine until about right around August, uh, August 1st of 2020. Oh. So just over a year. Uh, so it took us 11 months just to kind of get open. Got a wonderful group of people, not just outside these walls with, with our client base. I mean, they, they understood. They, they were very patient with us, which I can never appreciate enough. And, uh, but inside, you know, inside these walls, um, we were able to retain everybody. Everybody, everybody got what they were told they were going to get, you know, the end of 2020, we, we played catch up. We analyzed somewhere close to 65 or 70,000 soil samples, basically from August 1st until January 1st. We fought through January and February because those are the two slowest months of the year. And, uh, we've just been overwhelmed this spring and all the way through summer with people calling and, and, wanting to work with us and um, just a wonderful support group of, of people. And I'm not going to name names because there would, we'd be on the phone for another hour. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's kind of been the journey and we've been incredibly fortunate that, you know, we, we didn't have to lose anybody um, here. And, and because this is, it's, it's this group of people is what's going to make this work. And that's, that's always been the thing. I, I get to be the one to do the, uh, do the talks and the interviews, but uh, I don't do any of the work here. <laughs> um, that's what everybody else is doing. So, yeah. It's been great. As rocky as it was, I, I'm, I don't regret it. And, uh, and we're really excited about where we're going. Well, I have to agree. I mean, the, I don't know everybody who works at your lab, obviously, but uh, the community that you're working with is fantastic. And uh, I Absolutely. can't say enough about them also. It's just been overwhelming how, how many phone calls I get and somebody says, Oh, I was talking to so-and-so or, you know, I was visiting with this person and they were telling us that you were doing this. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing support group of, of people out there. Just really excited to be a part of it. It's humbling to be a part of it. Thanks to Lance Gunderson for this conversation about the importance of biology in the soil ecosystem. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. 
If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgarlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm the executive editor, Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.